This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Anchorlight, home to a 1,500-square-foot, zero-commission gallery providing exhibition opportunities to emerging artists. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Please note that today's episode of Art Curious contains language discussing violence and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Late in 2019, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. for work. And one of the best parts of my current life is that work, in lots of cases, really just means visiting a lot of museums and galleries, which is pretty much what I'd want to do in my off time anyway. But sometimes, after a full day of art, even my brain needs a big old break. So one of my favorite things to do is to mix things up. I'll go to a music performance or a cinema museum, something like that. But most often, it's a science or natural history museum, a place that allows me to exercise an entirely different part of my brain. So I ended up this time at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, and I toured around their vast, beautiful geological and gemological holdings. And that's when I ended up in a gallery teeming with people, all rubbernecking around one single display. And with hardly a second thought, I knew exactly what they were looking at. Because even though there were lots of amazing, huge jewels in nearby cases and in nearby galleries, sparklier things, more colorful things, I knew immediately that this one item was getting all the attention and why. It was the world-famous Hope Diamond, a gorgeous multi-carat blue diamond set into a platinum necklace and ringed with dozens of smaller white diamonds. It's beautiful, to be sure, but that isn't the reason for its immense popularity. No, people rubberneck at the Hope Diamond today so that they can catch a glimpse of something potentially evil. Because, as the old story goes, the Hope Diamond is supposedly cursed. The fact that the Hope Diamond is still one of the biggest draws today at the National Museum of Natural History can be attributed, at least in part, to the tales of its cursedness. This belief that it only brought ruination and tragedy upon the lives of the individuals who owned it. As we have learned in this season of Art Curious so far, this same kind of story has been lobbed at art and archaeological items as well, and has been rumored to be true of today's star painting, the Rokeby Venus. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, season nine, is all about curses in fine art and archeology, span a topic that was suggested by you, our listeners. And today, it's the premiere of the great Diego Velasquez on our podcast. Is his famous Rokeby Venus actually cursed? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Diego Rodrigo de Silva y Velázquez, or just Diego Velázquez to us today, painted the Rokeby Venus, 
which is its nickname, by the way, as it bears the official title of either the Toilet of Venus or Venus at Her Mirror, as he approached his 50s, having had an illustrious career as one of the premier painters to the Spanish royal court. His early life was rather uneventful, but follows a lot of the basic biographical elements that we've explored countless times on Art Curious. An early aptitude for the visual arts, lots of hard work in an early art apprenticeship, and a gradual rise to fame after completing years of solid, admirable work. By the time Velazquez entered his 30s, he had been snapped up by Spain's King Philip IV, and there Velazquez remained, in the royal court, being paid handsomely and even given a pension in his later years. In short, Velazquez had it made. But it also meant that, for the most part, his art was a little bit, well, not stifled necessarily, but with a few exceptions, not hugely fascinating either. He was a portraitist, and a portraitist to the most important people in his home country. So he had to toe the line a bit when it came to appeasing his wealthy and powerful patrons. And in this, he was golden. His portraits of Philip IV, for example, are stunning in their virtuosity. A wonderful mix of realism and flattery, so much so that you can almost hear the rustle of satin capes and bodices. And certainly he did a better job at making the royal court happy than Francisco de Goya, who held the same position about 150 years later and didn't always have his patron's wishes at the forefront of his mind. You can hear more about Goya's final years in our shock art episode on his painting, Saturn Devouring His Son. That's episode number 44 if you want to go back and listen. All of this focus on portraiture and on the particular wishes of his clientele actually means that the Rokeby Venus holds a rather special place in the artistic oeuvre of this famed artist, because it is his only surviving nude. But it makes sense why. Velazquez was active during the height of the Spanish Inquisition, and portraying nudes in art was generally looked down upon by the Catholic Church, who was against anything that could remotely be deemed salacious. And of course Velazquez would, A, not want to get in trouble personally, and B, would not want to do something that reflected badly upon his employer, the king. And so we got the Rokeby Venus, the only nude surviving from the great Spanish master. The Rokeby Venus is a true beauty a voluptuous brunette who is shown from behind as she lounges upon her bed, an intimate scene all draped in red and white and gray silky fabrics. That gray, by the way, actually used to be a deeper purple color, but it has faded over time, which is one of the many travesties that can befall a nearly 400-year-old painting. Cupid, Venus's son in ancient Roman mythology, stands nearby and holds a mirror up to Venus, who is admiring her own gaze. The position of the mirror is such that her face is reflected back at us, the viewers, a rather ingenious tactic that has stirred art historians into frenzies throughout the last century in particular, as ideas about the gaze, G-A-Z-E, has taken hold, and we're left to question who is looking at whom here. Who has the power? Is it us who admire Venus's ample behind? Or is it Venus who eyes us and our own potentially lascivious stares with this sense of knowing and awareness? 
What's additionally interesting about Venus's reflection and that gaze back at us is that Velasquez hasn't really delineated her face very clearly. We can make out a dark pair of eyes and rosy cheeks, perhaps the hint of a toothy smile, but it almost looks like Velasquez didn't properly finish the work with the same high attention to detail that is typically shown in his court portraits, for example. However, this might very well have been intentional on the artist's part, a way of keeping the physical appearance of the goddess of beauty and love, the epitome of gorgeousness, just vague enough that it's our job as viewers to mentally fill in the details, to come up with our own ideas about idealized female beauty. I love this idea. But I also have to admit that Cupid is also a little brushier than typical for Velasquez, so who knows? This interpretation might very well be bunk, but I still dig it. Regardless, it provides Velasquez with this greater air of mystery, so we are totally unable to see any of her defining features, other than that rear end, in any really clear way. It's a true change from other renditions of Venus throughout time, all laid bare for us to see in works by Italian greats like Titian and Giorgione, both of whom Velasquez admired greatly. But the Rokeby Venus is Velasquez's own invention, and a fascinating one at that. The fascination surrounding the Rokeby Venus doesn't just begin and end with the painting's appearance, but also extends to its creation. Art historians have long been unsure about the exact dating of the artwork, so it's typically listed in textbooks as belonging to the artist's mature period and is probably one of his final works, potentially predating his truest masterpiece, the courtly image Las Meninas, by only about four or five years, making Rokeby a hallmark of the last decade of the artist's life. Even more uncertain is the commission and provenance, or the history of ownership, of the work of art. Several art historians claim that the work was discovered in the inventory of a Spanish marquis who held close ties to the Spanish crown and who, apparently, quote, loved paintings as much as he loved women, unquote, which was apparently a lot. Other historians note that the painting was documented first in the holdings of a Madrid art dealer, but not listed as being created by Diego Velazquez. A lot of this mystery stems, probably, from the same reasoning behind the fact that this is the only surviving nude by Velazquez, the Spanish Inquisition. It wasn't totally illegal to paint or purchase artworks featuring sexy naked ladies, but you know, you'd probably want to keep such things on the down low, just in case. The painting itself didn't stay on the down low for terribly long. Over the centuries, the artwork kept popping up amidst rumors. Rumors that, in many ways, seemed to follow it the way that the stories of the Hope Diamond seemed to stay in the front of our minds. Coming up next, the Rokeby Venus, some say, was cursed, bringing death and devastation to some of her owners. Stay with us. Over the last year during quarantine, I've made a lot of purchases, especially online, and I am still making lots of purchases. 
From furniture to workout clothes and books for art-curious research, I'm shopping a bunch and I'm probably not stopping anytime soon. I want you to think about all of the quarantine purchases that you've made in this last year, and you're probably forgetting one of your biggest purchases of the year, insurance. Americans overspend on car and home insurance by billions with a B every year, and that's money that could have been spent on more retail therapy. That's where The Zebra can help you. The Zebra is the nation's leading insurance comparison site for home and car insurance, and in just minutes, you can compare policies from every major provider for free, all on one independent marketplace. After a few quick questions, the Zebra pairs people with the right insurance company for them, helping everyone to save time and money. You can buy online or over the phone with one of their licensed insurance agents, and there are no hidden fees or fine print about your personal information. Best of all, the Zebra has no stake in the policy you choose. They're just there to find the coverage that's right for you. So make insurance your smartest purchase yet. Visit thezebra.com slash art to get your free quote today. That's thezebra.com slash art. With the right tools, you are closer than you've ever been to hiring candidates with the skills you need. You don't need stacks of resumes on your desk. You don't need more work. What you really need is Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. You can get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet those must-have qualifications, and you can schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy with tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. And Indeed Skills Tests that on average reduces hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests, then add your must-have requirements so that you only pay for the applications that meet them. And according to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than any other job site combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash art. Remember that $75 credit at Indeed.com slash art. Indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. Like the stories of its commission, there are some mysteries about where and when the supposed Rokeby Venus curse began. Neither the Madrid art dealer nor the Spanish Marquis who first potentially owned the work seem to have met massive tragedy in their lives. For over a hundred years, the painting was passed down through various noble Spanish families, most notably the Duchy of Alba, another family with another link to that other great Spanish artist we mentioned earlier. Francisco de Goya, and more of that in a second. And it seems that it's really just the tragic story of the 13th Duchess of Alba that originally spurred the story of this supposed curse. The Duchess of Alba, whose given name and title is really, really long, but we can at least narrow it down to Maria del Pilar Teresa Catellana de Silva Alvarez de Toledo y Silva Bazan, the Marquise of Villafranca and the Duchess of Alba, whew, was one of the most powerful women in Spain in the late 18th century, second only to the Queen Maria Luisa of Parma. 
By all accounts, the Duchess of Alba was assigned all those stereotypical attributes lobbed so often at Spanish women. Strong-willed, fiery, so passionate that she threw temper tantrums when things didn't go her way. Whether or not this really was the Duchess's personality, or simply perhaps a misogynistic smear campaign to make her seem unstable, well, who can say? We do know that she was famed far and wide, known as one of the wealthiest women in Spain, and that her beauty was celebrated by all who knew her, counting her among the most beautiful women in the world during her lifetime. Certainly this tracks with the fact that the lead Spanish court painter at the time, Goya himself, made several portraits of her, including two most famous works that describe the Duchess based on the dresses that she wears in both, one called The White Duchess and the other The Black Duchess. Goya first met her when she was but a teenager, and Goya was quite a bit older, but they seemed to have enjoyed each other's presence, becoming friends over time. Goya even apparently made himself a home at the Duchess's villa for over a year when the older and somewhat ailing painter found affection and laughter with the Duchess, her adopted daughter, and her waitstaff. This connection with the Alba Duchy was perhaps taken to the extreme as rumors circulated almost immediately that Goya and the Duchess were engaged in a passionate love affair. A rumor driven naturally, not only by the supposed gorgeousness of the Duchess, but also due to the apparent existence of several drawings of the Duchess in various states of undress, held within Goya's personal effects. And then there's the portraits of the so-called nude Maya and the clothed Maya, two scenes of a Venus-like woman reclining with dark hair and beckoning come-hither eyes, whom some believe was based on the Duchess. That's another one of those who-knows-for-sure tales in art history. But it certainly would add fuel to a fire of a purported affair between Goya and the Duchess. But anyway, all of this is a tangent, and so now we should return back to Velazquez's Rokeby Venus. As part of the inheritance of the duchy, the Rokeby Venus was claimed by the 13th Duchess of Alba as part of her own personal effects. And when the Duchess died in 1802 at just the age of 40 and under potentially mysterious circumstances, people were left looking for answers and some decided to look no further than to the Velazquez painting hanging solemnly on her wall. The Duchess, you see, could have been driven mad by the gorgeous Venus, unchanged and perfect for more than 100 years, while the Duchess herself had entered middle age and was perhaps feeling the fading of her long-praised beauty. It drove her mad, some said, and it even may have driven her to take her own life via poisoning. Suicide inspired by painting. This isn't the last time we'll hear this kind of story on the podcast this season, by the way. Of course, it's probably more the case that the Duchess died of something far more straightforward and sadly far more common, like fever, tuberculosis, or something similar. But others have suggested that she might have perished during a botched abortion to rid herself of, wait for it, her lover Goya's child. Obviously, that idea is just a nice way to boost the illicit love affair story, and that has been super debunked. But the story of the supposed curse lives on. 
There's more to the story coming up after a quick word from today's sponsors. Art Curious listeners, I am so excited to finally share some big news with you. The Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium is everything we love and know about The Great Courses Plus and so much more. Wondrium provides amazing videos and audio learning experiences that are also super fun, too. There's this plethora of great content that help enrich our lives with mind-blowing, entertaining moments. And you get to stream all of our favorite content from The Great Courses Plus, including videos that were created in partnership with places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, History, the Culinary Institute of America, and more. Plus, there's also entirely new and exciting programs like Wondrium Originals and collections from Kino Lorber, Magellan TV, Craftsy, and more. There's also exclusive documentaries like the award-winning film Breaking Their Silence, all at no extra cost. I am really excited about Wondrium because I have been a fan of the great courses for so long, and Wondrium is now this cool, amazing place to nerd out in such a fun way with even more fun content. I can't wait for you to experience Wondrium, so prepare to have your mind blown. Sign up now through my special URL to get this amazing offer, a 14-day free trial of unlimited access. Go now to wondrium.com slash art. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash art. Wondrium.com slash art. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy, and I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. After the Rokeby Venus left the Duchy of Alba, it again changed hands a few times, first ending up with another one of the king's favorites, a man named Don Manuel Godoy, a minister to the king who is also a very fascinating figure in his own right. 
but one who may have fallen on the wrong side of history in the eyes of some Spaniards who would later criticize him. He, they say, remained far too neutral during the atrocities of the French Revolution, and by not coming to the aid of the monarchy, he inadvertently left the door open for Spain to be overtaken by Napoleon's army. In short, Godoy became the fall guy for a number of Spanish problems, including that Napoleonic invasion, the Anglo-Spanish War that raged from 1796 to 1808, and even the end of the Spanish Empire itself, and the bankrupting of the kingdom. That's a lot to place on one man, but some said that it was all because of that hazy, unfocused gaze of the Rokeby Venus, staring down at him, day after day after day. It cursed him it was said. And it doesn't matter how improbable that explanation is. Sometimes it's just easier to accept the hand of something mysterious or paranormal is at play than to seek out a more plausible explanation. In the early 1800s, Godoy was exiled from his home country, and naturally he had to leave a lot of his worldly goods back in Spain as he fled. And here again, the Rokeby Venus was held in this netherworld between owners. It made its way from mainland Europe over to England, where it was purchased by John Bacon Sari Morit, a politician who counted Sir Thomas Lawrence as one of his close friends. Lawrence was a leading portrait painter and later the president of the Royal Academy, Britain's premier art institution. You can hear more about the Royal Academy in one of my favorite episodes, number 36, on the juicy rivalry between Turner and Constable. Thomas Lawrence saw the Rokeby Venus and persuaded Moret to buy it for his estate, Rokeby Park, hence the painting's most common nickname. And there it stayed in Moret's home for nearly 30 years. And nothing happened. By all accounts, Moret lived a happy life with little peril, and when he met his death in 1843, it was at the age of 71. Not too bad for a 19th century gent, and it certainly wasn't a terrible or tragic end. It was just his time. The painting stayed hanging at Rokeby Park for a few more decades until it was acquired for the National Gallery, with funding set aside for its purchase by none other than the King of England, Edward VII, who apparently really liked the work especially Venus's rounded, ample rear end. And so, in the blink of an eye, the Rokeby Venus became part of the National Gallery's collection in 1906, where it has been housed ever since. And, for all intents and purposes, the curse of the Rokeby Venus was forgotten. But then, an opportunity, a terrible one, brought the curse right back into the forefront of the conversations around Rokeby. On March 10, 1914, eight comfortable years after the painting was acquired for the National Gallery, a woman named Mary Richardson snuck through its doors with a secret. She carried a meat cleaver hidden on her person. When she found herself face to rump with the Rokeby Venus, she pulled out that cleaver and in just a few seconds, she slashed the painting seven times, mostly damaging Venus's back and shoulders. And this is but one of the reasons why we need guards in museums, y'all. After Richardson was apprehended, she released a statement to explain her actions, which she noted were politically motivated, with a solid feminist bent. She said, quote, 
I have tried to destroy the picture of the most beautiful woman in mythological history as a protest against the government for destroying Mrs. Pankhurst, who is the most beautiful character in modern history. Justice is an element of beauty as much as color and outline on canvas. Mrs. Pankhurst seeks to procure justice for womanhood, and for this she is being slowly murdered by a government of Iscariot politicians. If there is an outcry against my deed, let everyone remember that such an outcry is a hypocrisy so long as they allow the destruction of Mrs. Pankhurst and other beautiful living women, and that until the public cease to countenance human destruction, the stones cast against me for the destruction of this picture are each an evidence against them of artistic as well as moral and political humbug and hypocrisy." Unquote. Ooh, that was a mouthful. But essentially, Mary Richardson attacked the Rokeby Venus because she was angered at the treatment of an English suffragette named Emma Pankhurst, who had condoned and even advocated for violence and destruction in order to draw attention to the plight of women in the early 20th century. And I mean, respect. I obviously support suffrage and equality for all human beings, but I'm not chill with destruction, especially the damage of works of art. But even from the start, the decision to attack Velasquez's nude seemed fishy to some, an all-too-familiar and convenient excuse. And indeed, as I noted in my book Art Curious, in reference to another famous butt in art history, so be sure to grab a copy of the book if you haven't already, Richardson eventually admitted in a 1952 interview that there was another reason for focusing her ire on the Rokeby Venus. And it was all because of that rear end. She disliked the painting because she hated, quote, the way men visitors gaped at it all day long, unquote. The painting highlighted men's lascivious nature, their fascination with the female body more than any other feminine attribute. So it was a convenient symbol for her anger, however justified or unjustified it may have been. And yet, some still wondered, was Mary Richardson herself so entranced by the painting that it drove her mad? Did its latent curse cause her to attack it? As we'd later learn, it isn't unknown or unusual that an individual could have a negative and physical reaction to a work of art. It's a topic we actually covered early on in Art Curious in episode 11 about art attacks and the so-called Stendhal syndrome. But in this case, again, I think it was just a convenient, if regrettable, way to grab some headlines for Mary Richardson. And luckily, this all has a happy ending. The painting was thankfully repaired by the National Gallery's chief conservator. So what really constitutes a curse, then, when it comes to a work of art, or indeed any object? While something like the Hope Diamond was rumored to have caused several deaths of the owners of the diamond or their close family members, the Rokeby Venus's connection to death and tragedy is less pronounced, except perhaps in the apocryphal case of the Duchess of Alba. More than anything, it's a story. And if I've ever said anything about art history, it's that sometimes we need a really good story to just get us interested in it in the first place. And if we need a story of a curse to get us to stand in front of the Rokeby Venus for a few minutes longer, to consider its provenance, or to think about all the things that Venus has gazed upon throughout the last centuries of history, then where's the harm in a little fable about a supposed curse? 
coming up next time on our podcast in two weeks. People often say that Edvard Munch's iconic painting, The Scream, represents the artist's descent into the edge of madness. But an entirely different one of his paintings is said to have driven viewers to madness themselves. Don't miss this episode. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Jessica Walschlager. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, hosted by Josh Dassel, my husband, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. To find the donation links and for more details about our show, including our reading list and more, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on all the socials at Art Curious Pod. And just a reminder that we have merchandise. Check out our link to our Tee Public store in the show notes and on our website. Check back in two weeks as we explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful and potentially cursed works and artifacts in art history. <laughs>